Thank you for listening to TMA's Practice Well podcast. TMA, helping you improve the health of all Texans. Did you know that you can claim CME credits for many of the TMA Practice Well podcast episodes? Just go to www.texmed.org forward slash CME to go. That's www.texmed.org forward slash CME. T-O-G-O, to register for your episode and follow the instructions to claim CME. Policies and standards at the Texas Medical Association, the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, and the American Medical Association require that speakers and planners for continuing medical education activities disclose any relevant financial relationship they may have with commercial entities whose products devices, or services may be discussed in the context at the CME activity. The planners and speakers for this program have nothing to disclose. Please be advised that the information and opinions presented as part of this program should not be used or referred to as primary legal sources and does not replace the advice of your healthcare attorney nor should the information and opinions presented as part of this program be construed as establishing medical standards of care for the purposes of litigation, including expert testimony. The standard of care is dependent upon the particular facts and circumstances of each individual case, and no generalization can be made that would apply in all cases. Hi, I'm Cheryl Kroviak. I manage the TMA Education Center and produce the TMA Practice Well podcast. And this is Ask the Expert, where you send in your questions and TMA expert staff and guests provide answers. This episode is moderated by Sylvia Salazar, AVP of Membership and Leadership Development. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's Ask the Expert virtual event is practical guidance for employed physicians. We've got several of our TMA staff experts here to help you today. And we also have Michael Krieger, who's an attorney with Krieger Mitchell um, here with us as well. Heather Betridge, the Associate Vice President for TMA's Practice Management Services. Robert Bennett, Vice President for TMA Medical Economics and Shannon Vogel, the Associate Vice President for TMA Health Information Technologies. I am going to start with our guest, Michael Krieger. I will ask that if there's um, a frequent question that you get. You bet. You know, with the, with the start of the pandemic, we would get questions from both the employer and the employed physician of when uh, the whole question of essential services came up. And so the the question would be, we, we can't even see patients in clinic, and yet we're still paying our employed physician a salary. And it, it, there's nothing in the contract that says that it can be adjusted. And buried at the back, a lot of contracts will have what is called a force majeure provision, which is a, some French phrase for saying, uh, if the contract can't be performed, the parties are excused 
for as long as it cannot be performed. It, it usually deals with things that are very rare, acts of God, floods, locusts, civil unrest, all the things that usually don't ever happen. But but one of the things in the list is not uncommon is epidemics. And so we had physicians, including some physicians in Austin, who I got calls and they said, you know what, my uh, I don't, I'm not getting my paycheck. And uh, we would call the employer after we read the agreement and said, you, you got to pay the physician. There's no excuse. There's no clause in here that, that gives you an out. And some employers said, well, we're just going to terminate you for cause and we don't have to pay you. And some would exercise a without cause provision. And it, it led to a lot of uh, distress. And now that COVID is, seems to be abating, at least for the short while, it's less important. But frequently now, when I see new contracts, I see that excuse in there to say, hey, if we have an, another event like this, we can change your schedule. We can modify your compensation. Uh, the national management companies, I saw a national management company employment agreement that had three pages of dealing with this kind of event and what could happen, including uh, suspend you for a while. Now, mind you, while you're suspended, you still have a covenant not to compete. So it's a, it's a dramatically unfair situation. Um, you know, another thing that I see is the without cause. So uh, Rocky and I talk about without cause all the time. Um, we, in our conversation, sometimes we call it with convenience or for convenience. So that's that provision that says, if either side is unhappy, you can give a notice to the other side. So the employer can say, you know, it's not working out. Here's your notice. It's no harm, no foul. Uh, you can continue working here for some period of time, and then you need to go find a job somewhere else. And, and the question is, how long is that notice? I, I would say the standard, if there is one, is 90 days. But I just got a call this month, the beginning of this month, and I was astounded by this. Um, a, a subspecialist was recruited to a city from an, a, from training, so moved states away to a new job and was working away. And unbeknownst to her, the practice was failing. And she got her notice and we looked at the contract and it was a 30-day notice. And uh, it, it really became poignant in my mind of I have medical student debt, I have a new mortgage, I have expenses of moving, and I just lost my job. And I can't go to work in the community because I signed a covenant not to compete. So the without cause is, is crazy, crazy to look at because it's, it's something you don't think about. The other thing I've been seeing is with, with the without cause notice. So it's 90 days is the typical thing. Each side gives 90 days notice. So the employed physician may be unhappy and say, I'm not working with this group anymore. And, you know, be putting out feelers and get another job. And the, uh, the acceptance of a new offer comes relatively quickly and they up and leave and before the 90 days is out. So employers are putting into contracts, if you leave, you got to pay us some money. Now, the, the rational way to do it is to say there should be a per diem cost. I don't know whether it's $500 a day, $1,000 a day. It depends on the specialty or subspecialty. But all too often it says, if you don't work all of it, you owe us $30,000. Or if you if you don't work uh, and give us all the days you are scheduled, you have to pay us, no matter what, you have to pay us a lump sum. And so the the, the employers are putting it in there so they don't, they aren't abandoned. Uh, and that's, that's 
that's saying after 30 days notice to patients. So there's no patient abandonment, but, but they've hired somebody and they have a full schedule and the employed physician says, I'm leaving to go take another job. Good luck on the next 60 days. Uh, they put in the contract. Yeah. If you do that, we're going to come after you for, for some amount of money. We'll, we'll withhold it from your final paycheck on and on and on. There's a question and it says, I know the federal government is looking to rein in non-compete clauses. How will that impact Texas? Well, that's a really good question. The Federal Trade Commission issued a, a report a few years ago. Um, so far, it hasn't gotten any traction yet. Um, and I'll, I'm going to also let the lawyers also chime in on this one, because generally, if Congress gets its act together and they pass a law that non-competes are illegal, and that is very likely going to take control of each state's laws. And uh, if it gets passed, it could be that the Texas law would be voided because of the federal law taking precedent. But um, the other lawyers can chime in on this. There may be some issue of whether, whether the Congress has that power to regulate state commerce. It'd be an interesting thing. I mean, Congress does have the power to, to regulate commerce if it involves commerce among the states, which that's how they pass laws in dealing with you know, whether 18 wheelers have to have mud flaps or not. Um, so it's possible. It's, a, it's an intriguing question. And I've, I've been keeping an eye on it. But given that Congress can't seem to get anything done right now, I'm not sure it's, it's very it's going to happen very soon. So, uh, you know, I don't know if Heather or Rocky or other lawyers on the call have some thoughts on that. I agree with Mike on that uh, on that issue. So we have seen some interstate commerce uh, case kind of decisions in this area where the courts look at, well, how is the financing made? Well, the payments coming out of state, you know, they're looking at the interstate activities that involve a medical practice or a hospital practice. So certainly a large practice uh, may, you know, be in a bit different situation than a sole practitioner who doesn't accept contracts from, uh, you know, carrier that really isn't def uh, definitive in terms of how far that interstate commerce would apply to a physician's practice today. Um, I'm going to call on one of our other speakers, Shannon. Um, would you have any frequently asked questions you want to share? Sure. Thanks, Sylvia. And, you know, one thing that we hear a lot about is the challenge of exchanging patient information. And there are a couple of ways to do that. And I think that it's worth having a discussion within the practice if you don't feel that it is working out well. And this should happen I'm not going to use the word seamlessly, but pretty close to it as far as bi-directionally. So when you need to uh, query a patient for information about maybe where they've recently been seen or um, current medications, recent labs, et cetera, you should be able to query through a health information exchange. Now, if you're just wanting to do um, sharing of records between practices, say for patient referrals, there's a little bit easier way to do that that doesn't require a lot of the data mapping that is required in the expense of connecting to a health information exchange. And that's using what is called direct protocol or direct trust, which is really um, a HIPAA compliant email service where the information is encrypted. And a lot of times the EHR vendors are providing this direct address uh, for free for its users. Sometimes it's low cost, maybe you know, 50 or $100 a year to have this access. Um, but that does help with moving patient information. And I know that's been one of the bigger challenges in healthcare since we've digitized 
within the last decade, how many physicians are now using EHRs. So glad to entertain any specific questions about health information exchange or how your organization may be um, trying to tackle that because it is one of the, the bigger challenges we hear about now. Thank you, Shannon. Uh, Heather, I'll call on you next. Thanks, Sylvia. You know, one question I could think of that um, sometimes we get from physicians um, considering an employment contract is the question of where should their um, salary draw be set? So, you know, first, a salary draw is a percentage of your estimated salary for the year, right? It's a set um, amount that a physician will receive every pay cycle. And in our experience in consulting, we frequently see draws set around the 70 to 80 percent um, of estimated annual salaries. So if you if a draw is set too low, for example, at, at 50%, you'll have a larger salary true up, be it quarterly or, or biannually. But if you set a draw too high, say 90%, you'll have relatively small true ups. And what that could mean is if a draw is set too high, but you happen to have a lower productivity for that year, you may actually owe money back to the employer. So we encourage physicians, you know, think about your lifestyle and where you are in life. Like if you um, like to travel and take time off for vacations or you're growing your family and plan to take time off for maternity, um, these choices take time away from the clinic and so it'll affect productivity. So where to set a physician's draw is really a personal decision. Um, and it depends on their comfort level. Thank you very much, Heather. That was very helpful. And I am going to call on Robert Bennett next. Hi, uh, good afternoon, everyone. Just thinking of the FAQs that I'm receiving, I've been working closely with our advocacy team on uh, the pending Medicare cuts. There's going to be a 1% cut occurring in Medicare Part B physician payments on April 1 due to sequestration, which is really Congress just not being honest with how they're spending money. Then there's going to be another 2% cut occurring in July. So TMA has uh, recently, March 17th, sent a letter to all of our representatives and both of our senators uh, calling for relief from these cuts and um, you know, looking at the uh, crystal ball and talking with the AMA uh, counterparts. Congress is not addressing this, so these cuts will go into effect. You know, will Congress then retroactively come in and for, you know, retroactively fix the 1% cut? and address the July cuts, um, that remains to be uh, seen. But uh, we're calling on Congress to establish a reliable and predictable uh, Medicare physician payment update instead of having, and one that keeps up with inflation, I should add, instead of one that uh, where we have to fight these cuts every few months or, or once a year. I'll quickly mention another FAQ I have. It applies to all physicians, not just employee physicians, is uh, about the implementation of the uh, Texas's gold carding law. And we're in this uh, limbo between the, the legislature passed a bill, but we're waiting for the Texas Department of Insurance to fully implement it. So we get calls uh, asking people, how do they know if they have a gold card status? And, and those details aren't quite out yet because the regulations haven't been fully developed. Um, but that's something we'll certainly highlight in a variety of uh, PMA educational venues once, once those are out. Thank you, Robert. Uh, next, I will call on Cara Benson. Thank you, Sylvia. So a lot of the questions that we get in reimbursement services are geared towards incident two billing. 
failing from mid-levels. One in particular, if you're in a, a group situation, even an employer or whether you're an owner, if you are out of the office, you can still bill for a mid-level incident too. What the key is to a group setting is if there is a supervising physician in the office readily available. Again, they don't have to be directly in the suite, but there just needs to be a supervising physician available. So you would still be able to bill for those services provided by a mid-level, even though the employed physician might have set the plan of care, um, they just need to have a supervising physician in the office. Thank you, Cara. Michael, would you be able to help with her question? How does a practice resolve disputes with a departing employed physician regarding patient notification if it is not outlined in the contract? I can offer what I see. Um, so all too often, if it's not addressed in the contract, then the medical board rules do address it. It's medical board rule 165.5. Um, it was updated to at least enter the 21st century. But the, the rules fundamental concept is not has not has not changed. And uh, what we have done when we've had difficulties with a group is to send a copy of the rule to the practice and say, uh, you need to follow the rule and take a look at this particular paragraph of the rule, which says that the employer may not interfere with the employed physician's ability to get the information to notify patients. So. I think that's the best thing to do is to pull out the rule and read the rule to the employer if they're not cooperating. I will say that the large employers, uh, the ones that have had experience employing physicians, whether they're national management companies or hospitals, uh, systems and the like, they will insert in the contract and address that. And in fact, all too often they override the rule or try to override the rule and say, that uh, if you are leaving, we will take care of notifying the patients and we will decide what to put in the notice. And it, it is it, it can be a very uh, sticky source of disagreement between the employer and the departing physician. But because first, it, the rule says it is the departing physician's responsibility. That's clear. And the rule also says to notify patients you have seen within the last two years uh, the rule carves out, understandably, specialists who, who have high-frequency patients and don't really have contact with the patient, like a pathologist, an anesthesiologist, and the like. But the, the contracts now will say, well, disregard the rule, we'll take care of it, and you will have no input on telling the patient what goes into the, to the notice. I want to, this is Cara, I want to add something to that. They also need to keep in mind that there are stipulations within the health plan contracts as well. So, for instance, Blue Cross may require you to send a notice, whether written, verbal, within 30, 60 days. So it's important to look at those as well. Great point. Thank you for adding that, Cara. I, I did miss a question earlier on. Um, from our earlier discussion, and it is, what if a newly employed physician finds out their employer has been excluded from Medicare and Medicaid? Does that void their contract? Wow, <laughs> that's a, that is something else. Um, it's so funny because the, the employed physician in almost all employment contracts makes a list of anywhere from five to 10 representations, such as never excluded or debarred or suspended by Medicare or 
a licensing board or privileges with a facility. But the, it, I, 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 it's such a good question because I don't think I've ever seen where the employer has made any representation. So if this happened, I'm not sure I really care whether the contract could be voided. I think I would, I, I'd be so worried about what the heck did they do that they got excluded from the program that I probably leave as quick as I could and 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 uh, fight about it on another day. I mean, there could be, and Rocky can weigh in on this, but I mean, there could be a basis to saying that it's implicit in the in the contract, particularly if if the contract said you, the physician, are uh, and you're able to participate in the Medicare or Medicaid programs. It would be implicit that the employer would be, and so. That might be a, a, a condition that, even though not disclosed, could give rise to legally voiding the contract. But sometimes the practical answer is is to leave as fast as you can. And something went wrong. Thank you for that. Yeah, you know, I don't I don't have anything to offer other than what uh, Michael said. That made that all made sense to me, Michael. That's a tough situation. Uh, you'd hope that uh, the court would uh, let you out of the contract in that circumstance, but. It, I've never seen a, a, a contract that addressed that in terms of what the employer's uh, participation is. I've never seen that. So. Hmm, interesting. Anyone else that would like to weigh in on a frequently asked question that you get? I have one that's not necessarily frequent, but it has come up. But a lot of times um, within an EHR, there are things called order sets where maybe, you know, if you're ordering something and usually there are other things that typically ride with that order, they're put together and it improves the efficiency and helps optimize the EHR use. But we've had some physicians come to TMA and say, you know, my hospital or the practice where I work, um, their IT department is changing these order sets and I'm not able to order what I would typically order in a situation and I'm not allowed to go outside of the boundaries of what the order set um, has in place and, and to customize it for my own likeness. And I think that it, it just speaks to the need to stay involved as much as you can, because really, you know, with, if it's within a hospital, the medical staff should have a say in that. Um, if it's a large practice, I think it behooves you to volunteer to be part of any discussions around order sets to make sure that there's good representation on how those are um, developed and then implemented for the practice to use. So just a little negative wisdom that to pay attention to those order sets and influence where you can. Thank you, Shannon. This is Cara again. So I want to go back to that last question that deals with the contract. Um, one thing to consider is when you are an employee of a practice, if the owner has died or been revoked from Medicare, that's something you want to look at because it resolves all Medicare enrollment for that group. Understood. Thank you. Good point. I can ask um, Michael a question. What's the most important uh, provision in a uh, physician's contract with an employer? <laughs> I would say the money, but the things that I look at right off the bat is um, how, how can you get out of the contract? if it's not a pleasant place to work. And if you do, what do you have to stay for a while and, and work the time uh, that must be given in the way of a notice? Uh, what, a, what effect does it have on your compensation? Because the questions and discussion earlier were, if you have a draw, 
set at a particular standard. I mean, I know the hospital systems are very fond of, of saying, hey, if you are highly productive and we owe you money at the end of the quarter because your productivity exceeded your draw, they only pay half of it and they wait till the end of the year to pay the other half. And so I'd be keenly interested is how do you get out and then what impact does it have on your getting paid for the work you did? Because all too often the contract will say, you have to be here on the day that we pay the true up. And that might be 30 days after the end of the year that they're measuring. So uh, for me, termination provisions, the other thing is the covenant not to compete. And I I'll tell you this, and hopefully our, our friend who's talking to the legislature can can talk to the to the legislature and see how the wind is blowing, but I'm getting really irritated by our state-funded institutions, not picking on anyone in particular, Dell Hospital, but at Dell Medical School, but I'm getting really irritated that our institutions that are funded with state tax dollars are asking their employee physicians to sign covenants not to compete that run two years, and I think Dell is either 25 miles or 35 miles, but Del, Dell's not the only one. Uh, MD, the school at MD Anderson in Houston, Baylor, uh, Scott and White, um, all of them and, and the other UT system schools um, all have this. And I'm, you know, a, a physician who goes to work in academia has limited options. And if they want to join a private practice, I think they ought to be able to do it. But uh, so that's my pet peeve for the day is state-funded institution imposing really stringent covenant not to compete on employed faculty positions. Thank you. All right, well, this activity is designated for a maximum of uh, 0.5 AMA PRA category one credit. And again, I wanna thank you for joining us for this Ask the Expert program and thank you to all the experts for also joining us. We hope you take away practical tips you can start using today. Check the episode description for the links to claim CME and the full list of Ask the Expert episodes. Remember to like and follow the TMA Practice Well podcast so you get every episode. Until next time, stay well. Stay well.